Good evening and welcome to the Pratt Library and the Wheeler Auditorium. This is one of our favorite rooms in the library. I say we because I used to work here. Um, and the, the reason we like it is because it welcomes so many wonderful authors. We've had all kinds of authors come and we have two wonderful authors tonight. Uh, my name is Kathy Herrig and I'm from Mystery Love's Company Bookstore, which is now on the Eastern Shore in Oxford. It used to be in Fells Point here in Baltimore. And I was a Pratt Librarian for too many years. <laughs> 28, actually. <laughs> uh, we have two wonderful authors this, this evening um, up from the district, the District of Columbia, to talk to you about two very unusual special books. Um, first of all is Allison. We are down the left. <laughs> Figured out where she was. Allison is a um, federal, was a federal sex crimes pro prosecutor in D.C., for 12 years, and during that time, she started some writing part-time, but now she writes full-time, and she's left the Justice Department to pursue her writing career. Um, her first book was Law of Attraction, then Discretion, and then Speak of the Devil, uh, which was named at the Suspense Magazine Book of the Year. Um, she's the founder of the award-winning blog, The Primetime Crime Review, and she goes with her husband, Michael, in D.C. Um, and this is her new book, which is called The Good Killing. Okay. And we have all of these outside. And our second guest is Mary Louise Kelly, also from DC, also lives in DC. And she was a journalist for NPR and the BBC, and as an NPR correspondent covering the spy beat in the Pentagon, she reported on wars, terrorism, and rising nuclear powers. She's educated at Harvard University and Cambridge in England. She lives in DC and Florence, Italy. And they're going to talk about their books, and I'll sort of let them have a conversation. Uh, but basically, what is it special? I was just interviewed on this very topic. What is it, is it special about setting a DC? Um, why would you set a DC book as a thriller as opposed to a mystery in the District of Columbia? And I ask you that question because that was asked to me by the Washington Post a couple weeks ago. <laughs> in other words, they want to know what was so special about the thriller genre that you would use it instead of writing a, a regular mystery in DC. Right. Well, before we start, Kathy, actually, is it okay with you? Can I, um, this is my little thing. I like to send around a book of my own and have everybody who's here sign it. So if you don't mind, you don't, you don't have to, but this is like, this is my little memento of my book tour. So I'm going to send it around. Maybe. So why did you pick the, the thriller or suspense genre as opposed to a straight mystery genre? I, I think the thriller genre kind of chose me because my job as a sex crimes prosecutor was a bit of a thriller type job. You never knew what was around the corner. I would walk to the courthouse with a particular plan and as soon as I walked in the courthouse doors that plan would change depending on what a witness said or what a, a judge said. And I think the stories that w I was living were very much thriller-type stories. They were also mysteries, and I think both of those elements are in my book because of the job. Mm -hmm. I, same thing. I mean, I had covered the national security and spy beat at NPR for years, and my day job was going out to CIA headquarters in Langley and interviewing spies out there and at the National Security Agency and at the Pentagon, um, or going overseas and interviewing their counterparts in Pakistan or on the, you know, in the Khyber Pass or in the Middle East or wherever. 
And, uh, and you fill up, I mean, I'm old school. I don't carry an iPad around. I've got my microphone and my reporter's notebook. And you fill up these spiral-bound reporter's notebooks with all these crazy stories of things you see on this beat. So where do you set a spy thriller? Pick a sexy international location, and then you always end up in the corridors of power in Washington with your <laughs> protagonist chasing somebody around the hallways of the CIA and the White House. So you're saying that it's exactly like Real one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say my second book, The Bullet, which just came out this spring, is also a thriller, also set in Washington, but totally different. My protagonist does not chase anybody around the corridors of power in the White House or Pentagon or State Department. And I think that was because I'd now lived in D.C. over a decade and realized for most people, you know, you don't spend your day chasing spies around (laughs) Langley. Unfortunately, that would be fun. Um, For most people, you, you go about living your daily life, and Washington is home to all of the people running the world, but it's also home to teachers and artists and lawyers and drug dealers and all kinds of other people, and there are all these different pockets of the city. So I deliberately cast the protagonist of The Bullet as a professor of French literature at Georgetown, um, who is this homebody who spends her days sipping herbal tea in the library. And that was really fun to play with, this totally untypical protagonist who then gets caught up in this crazy story and has to figure out what to do with it. And I noticed that Valerie Flame was one of the people that worked your book. And for those people that don't know, tell us how she was caught up in a particularly interesting story. (laughs) Valerie Plame, uh, as many of you will know, was caught up. uh, She was a CIA uh, case officer for many years and specialized in nuclear weapons, traveled overseas, and then was based back at CIA headquarters in Langley and um, got caught up in the whole scandal over Scooter Libby, who was then Vice President Dick Cheney's chief of staff in the run-up to Iraq uh, was at the center of a controversy because she was outed. We should never have heard of Valerie Plame. She's supposed to be undercover at the CIA, and her identity was outed, and a, a reporter went to jail over it, and others were prosecuted and lost their jobs. And She has since moved to New Mexico uh, and lives a relatively quiet life and now writes uh, thrillers herself and is on her second <laughs> novel writing about a, a nuclear terrorist, which is something she knows her, her way around. So when I was thinking, who, who would be somebody who, who I would love to get feedback on my, on my books from? I thought of her and sent it off, and she was nice enough to give me a nice review. Um, Allison, this is an Anna Curtis story, but she goes to a different place. How did you decide to take her out of the you. Right. So Anna Curtis is the fictional sex crimes prosecutor who has starred in all of my books so far. In the first three, they were all in D.C., and she's running around solving mysteries in D.C. But for the fourth one, I really wanted this to be a personal story for her, much more about her family. I think that's always harder to deal with than uh, somebody else's case or somebody else's problem. And her family is pretty much, at this point, one person. That's her sister, her younger sister, Jody. And Jody lives in Michigan in one of these kind of rusting towns that's based on the auto economy and she's been charged with killing a local coach, high school football coach in a town that loves its football. So Anna has the deck stacked against her when she comes back but I wanted to explore a lot of these issues that come up now. I think it's such a timely subject that we see over and over again which is do we treat our sports figures differently in the justice system? 
And how did you go about that? Because she was she is accused of killing this person because she had an affair with him, and right. she was the person in place, the likely suspect. Right, so. it's a crime of passion. The police think, and Anna has to figure out if that's true. Right. Uh, how did it differ also from your first three, which were definitely set in D.C. and definitely right? Rivers. So, so <laughs> this is set in Michigan, and I think it's such an interesting setting. Detroit has been both the best and the worst that American cities can be. It used to be considered the Paris of the West with all of its commerce and culture. And now it's declared bankruptcy. There's so much uh, empty land that the city of Paris could fit inside the empty land. I have this one scene where they go up to the top of this abandoned skyscraper. They have all these abandoned skyscrapers in Detroit. That covered, their windows covered with plywood or even just open to the air with the wind whistling through it. And Anna goes to the top and looks at the city, and it's like looking at uh, ruins, like looking at Machu Picchu or the Roman Forum. And it's, it's a, if you've ever been to Detroit, it's a startling, startling view. But there's also this sense of optimism of what do you do when you've hit rock bottom? That's kind of, it's both a metaphor for some of the people, some of the characters in my book who've had bad things happen to them, and how do you bounce back from that? And, I'll, and how are people doing this in this real city that has hit rock bottom and is finding really amazingly creative ways through artists, through, through um, farmers, um, through community leaders to do um, different things with that. And in some ways, I think Detroit is the canary in the mine shaft for all American cities. Hmm. Um, uh, in your book, Regalese, you have a very unusual thing happen to you. Can you tell a little bit about the title and not give too much away? <laughs> I can. So the book is titled The Bullet, which becomes obvious by about page eight. Uh, why? And, um, and its genesis was from a true story. Um, my first book, as I mentioned, was this you know, big international espionage thriller with a reporter who's chasing a big story. And I was all set to write a sequel to that and was a few chapters in and it was going well. And took the afternoon off to go to my son's little league game in, in Washington. And I'm sitting there and as any of you know, if you have kids who've played little league, um, those games go on forever when they're like nine years old. And I'm sitting there about inning five and it feels like about hour 15 with my eyes rolling back in my head. and. Um, and this idea for a totally different book came to me. Um, in fact, plopped down beside me, literally, in the form of another mother whose son was also playing. She sat down and looked at me and said, I have just had a heck of a week. And I said, oh, and I didn't really know her. And she said, yeah. And she held up her wrist and said, I've had carpal tunnel, like RSI, wrist pain. They can't figure out why. So I'd gone to get an MRI, and as she'd left getting the MRI, the technician had chased her out into the hallway and said, how did you get it? And this woman said, what? And the technician said, you know, the, how did you get that? What? And the technician finally said, the, the bullet in your neck. How did you get a bullet in your neck? True story. This is three years ago in D.C. This woman's telling me this, and I'm looking at her going, hang on, <laughs> you're, you're telling me you have a bullet in your neck and you didn't know it? Yes. I said, what, I mean, have you ever been shot? Uh, apparently, yes. <laughs> no, never been shot. I said, have you had amnesia? No. I'm lifting her hair. I'm looking. There's no scar. 
We are in D.C., and I am familiar with the spy beat, so I'm asking, do you have a clandestine past? That would we go through the whole thing. She has no idea how this could be, but she's seen it in an MRI. Um, so I, drove, I was driving home from the baseball game and thought, that's such a great story. Like, how, is that even possible to, A, get shot right there and survive it, and B, not yeah, know about it? Like, how could that happen? And the novelist and me took over, and I started thinking, how could that happen? and created a protagonist named Caroline Cashin, who, as I mentioned, is a French lit professor living her quiet little homebody life, teaching. And um, by page eight, she discovers she has a bullet in her neck. And the story that unfolds is how it came to be there and her quest to try to figure out how did this get there and her discovery that there are a number of interested dark forces out there who were still very interested in that bullet in her neck and would like to get their hands on it. So, so I'm curious, Mary Louise, do you, does your mom friend know? Has she figured out how she got the bullet there? So I did not see this woman again the whole time I was writing. Are you um, giving her royalties? Which, <laughs> don't plant that idea. That was off the record. Never heard it. She's a lawyer. You know? <laughs> yeah, don't sue me. Um, I didn't run into her again, and I was kind of glad because I was having so much fun writing what I hoped was a way more harrowing and sinister way that a bullet would get into your neck than whatever had happened to this poor woman. Um, but this spring, as the book was coming up to publication date, I thought, I, I really deserve to, you know, this woman deserves to know that that gave me the seed of an idea. And I'm also really curious. I mean, I'm a writer, a writer I'm also a reporter. I wanted to know, how did, how, what did she ever find out? And I went back and did a long interview with her, and... Um, just this great real life mystery. She doesn't know. She's since uh, she's now had MRIs and CAT scans and seen multiple doctors. And there is what looks an awful lot like a bullet, like half an inch long, tapered at one end in her neck, right up against her spine, and no idea how it got there. And no idea to take it out either. Well, it is, from what they can tell, it's right up against mm. her spinal cord. It does have blood vessels and all nerves mm. and tendons all around it. And um, she doesn't know for sure if it's linked to this ongoing wrist pain, which she still has and has had multiple surgeries for. But at the moment, it doesn't seem to be bothering her, and so she's leaving it quick. At one point, you mentioned in the book that it possibly could have been during surgery and it crept up there. Is that even possible for her? I went through all of these different scenarios for how on earth this could happen and um, everything that I've told you and everything she told me does unfold with by, I think it's like page eight or nine, mm -hmm. so you know, I'm not giving any major no, plot twists no. away here, um, but yeah, I was thinking, you know, maybe, she, have you ever had surgery anywhere north of your waist? And you, you hear about a surgical clip getting dropped, maybe that's it, I don't know. She says she hasn't, so <laughs> I don't know. One of life's great mysteries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Allison, tell us a little bit. You, you've now retired. You've got a very sort of... Do I, guess, I don't feel retired. retired. <laughs> <laughs> I've retired, yes. Same, same kind of thing. You never retire. Um, I, what do you miss most about not going into work every day? Right. Well, I do go into work every day, and it's really important to keep that mindset as a writer that that's my job, and that's what I need to be doing every day. And I can't treat it like, oh, let me take a nap, or oh, I need to do the laundry. Sometimes I think I'll get inspiration while I'm sorting the laundry, and you don't. You have to be <laughs> sitting in your seat, and you have to say, all right, this is the time that I'm on my job as a writer. And so I have to be way more disciplined. 
So that's how I approach it. But I, the thing that I miss about the office, about the U.S. Attorney's Office, is the people. They were the, some of the most incredible people I've ever met were there working you know, ahead of me, teaching me uh, what to do, how, how to do the job. And we're just fighting for justice every day. It, there's a luxury of being a prosecutor that it's unlike what any other lawyer has. Your job every day is to go in and do the right thing. Uh, most lawyers, their job is the narrow interest of their particular client. But as a prosecutor, you're trying to figure out what's the truth and what's the right thing to do in that situation. There's no other legal job like that. So the people and then the rewards of the work, um, you know, putting a predator in jail, is, there's nothing like it. That's what I miss. So do you intend for, your, for Anna to still be on her, her quest for law and order? <laughs> I, I don't know. I just finished book five. Oh. I just turned in book number five. And we also moved houses in the middle of my book tour and, and book deadline. So right now what I plan to do is land the couch <laughs> for, for a week or two, and then Anna and I can, can powwow and figure out if we've got any more adventures left together. Right, right. Um, when you were writing Mary Louise, you, you, you had this different life, but when you're writing, can you escape from that life, or does it still give you the, the as you said, you went to a baseball game to get the inspiration for this one, but does it still give you the, the, the idea of how you would progress with your next book? Can I escape the reporting life? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> um, no, is the short answer. I mean, I, I always, as a reporter, there's two sides to that coin. There's the going out and reporting and getting the story and talking to people and finding the facts. And then there's the coming back to the newsroom and writing it or going to the courthouse and writing it, wherever, wherever you're filing from. And um, the reporting to me was always the more fun and definitely the more... Um, easier. The writing is hard. Coming back and forcing yourself to sit down and write it on deadline is hard. Um, and I miss, I miss so many things about the newsroom. I miss the, the crazy deadlines. You know, when you work at writing a novel, you have deadlines, but they're a year away. And while that starts creeping up and feeling you know, very imminent when you're, when you're a few weeks out, it's, you still have time. As a reporter at NPR, you your deadlines are minutes away or seconds away. I mean, there are many mornings where I remember driving into the parking garage and uh, you hear yourself getting paged and the elevator is going up and it's come to the morning edition studio now. Are you in the building? Come to, come to the studio now. And you know you're about to go on air and you don't even know what the story is. You just go. And you either like that kind of pressure or you, or you hate it. And uh, I had a moment on book tour with this book just a few weeks ago. I was up in Boston giving a talk in Boston and... Uh, it went well. It was a bookstore. It was fun. Met a lot of people. Sold books, and then went into the local NPR station WBUR, and it was during the middle of the Tsarnaev trial, the Boston Marathon bombing trial, and some news had just broken in that. It wasn't the verdict. It was it was a few days before that. But the newsroom was going crazy as I walked in, and they bumped my book interview back by 20 minutes, and I had I had a, a few minutes just to sit there and watch. And there's that thrum of being in a live newsroom as news is breaking that to me I still feel it's in my blood I miss it can, can I ask you something though being a, a sort of news junkie isn't it getting to be a little bit much that everything has to be breaking news <laughs> I would totally agree with that and I will say with apologies to anyone who works in cable news who's in the audience tonight I, I went to CNN for about six months and that was about all I could take <laughs> <laughs> the experience of, of reporting there is um, 
is similar to if you sat and watched CNN for nine hours <laughs> straight. I mean, if that's what it feels like, you do the same story over and over and update it every 12 hours. They had hours. about eight, eight breaking news stories in one hour today. It's, yeah. It, and, and maybe they did. Maybe and they, they do really a great won. job at it. And if there's news breaking, then my TV will be on CNN. Um, but it is, uh, it's such a, it's a balance that all newsrooms are trying to figure out. I mean, in the years since I became a reporter, 20 years since I left university, and it used to be, even in broadcast, that if you had a deadline, it was that evening and you had time to report. And now it's constant updates for the websites and the newscast and the podcasts, and you're tweeting about it constantly. And news is being made even as you are filing your story. And the pressure to keep up is exhilarating. It's a new way to tell a story as, as a, someone who likes to tell stories and, and, and get the news out there. But it's, um, it's exhausting this is something I've learned, I guess, writing novels and in news. If you're writing a novel and you're having fun, hopefully the reader will have fun reading that mm-hmm. scene. If you're reporting the news and it's, you're having fun, <laughs> that translates. If you're exhausted by the pace, I think that shows up too. <laughs> Listeners get it. And, um, uh, and Allison it's, and it's too I, much. I think Allison yeah. knows her, and maybe you do too. Um, Hank Philippi Ryan. Yeah. Um, she was, they threw her literally to the lions um, on NBC in Boston when the Cernive thing broke when the Boston Marathon thing broke. She didn't have a clue and they were feeding her. She was she was not being the reporter. They were feeding her what she was supposed to say and she said it was one of the worst parts of her career. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't she serve was more used purpose. to finding the facts herself and verifying them instead of in a situation like that where everything is changing so rapidly, she was totally sure that this was not going to be true <laughs> 10 minutes later, and she didn't like being in that situation. And the funny thing was, I think a couple of nights ago, they won the Emmy for it, and which she's won many, but she, you know, so she was, I'm sure she was not thrilled to accept it because <laughs> she, she didn't feel like she really was justified in it. But I mean, I'm not saying she, she embarrassed herself, but she just was not used to being at the anchor position where she didn't, couldn't mm-hmm. verify the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, in, in this, uh, uh, Allison, in this, in this new book, how did it differ from the way that you wrote your others because they were set in D.C.? This one was obviously set up elsewhere in Michigan. Were you doing research differently? Did you have to physically go there and... <laughs> Well, I grew up in Michigan, so that made it a lot easier. That's I've, I've written what I've known for Still. a lot of these books. Yeah, I, I think I, I've come to the end of what I know, so now I need to start making stuff up. <laughs> it's going to be harder. But I know Michigan, so that's why I did that. But one of the big things that was different for me in this one was the point of view. It's been um, Anna most of this time. Anna and some assorted bad guys. I always like the bad guy's point of view. That's always really fun to write. Um, because nobody's really truly a bad guy. Everybody's got at least a dog who likes them or, or a, a girlfriend or a grandmother or somebody, some, something. But the big difference in this one was Jody's point of view. People kept asking more Jody. People love the sister who had these little passing glimpses in the, the other books. And she's such an interesting, tough character. She leads a totally different life than Anna. And I'd had a hard time getting this book started. Just kept outlining and outlining and never was satisfied with, with what was going on. And then I finally figured out what Jody was going to do and what her backstory was. And suddenly I wrote a, a third of the book in two weeks. It was Jody's point of view. There's alternating chapters. Jody's about a third of the book. 
And once I wrote that, I knew what the whole book was about and everything flowed from there. So Jody's voice is the new thing. And people, the feedback I've been getting is that people are really enjoying Jody's voice. I wonder if I can make her a detective. <laughs> Spin her off. So is the new one that you finished, is that one set back in DC? No, it's still, for the most part, in Detroit. It's about college campus sexual assaults. Wow. What did you think about the recent, um, what was it, the reverse of some of the, well, I was thinking of the Rolling Stone. The Rolling Stone yeah. article. I think it's unfortunate that stories uh, yeah. like that jade everybody towards uh, most sexual assault uh, reports are real, genuine, and have been properly vetted. And I think a story like that, which is improperly vetted, just really hurts the, the whole cause. It's so hard to get people to believe sex assault victims. People believe a mugging victim, a theft victim, a, 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 if you see a homicide, they believe those witnesses. But for some reason, there is this skepticism towards sex assault victims that doesn't attach to any other victims in the world. And I think you know, journalism that, like the Rolling Stone article, just really sets us back by a decade almost in terms of um, the attitudes that we need to, to getting people to understand about the reality of sex assaults. Because the truth is that the reports of sex assaults are just as likely to be true as any other report, as, as someone who reports they were mugged or um, had a, a or burglarized. Marigolese, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? So I feel like I'm living four different careers at the moment. I'm noodling over what book number three might be. And unlike Allison, I decided to do a new protagonist and new characters for each book. I think that part of that is I do enjoy the reporting and the making stuff up. And it's so fun for me to get to know a brand new protagonist. Creating those characters is, is to me a lot of the fun. And so... Book three will be something different and somebody new that we haven't met, although it may go back to uh, including spies. My agent, is um, <laughs> she was pushing hard. When I, when I turned in the manuscript for the bullet, she said, no spies, not even one. You know, <laughs> could the cat be a spy? <laughs> um, so, so I think that I am going to go back in that direction. So I'm noodling that, and um, I have an idea, and I'm kicking it around and trying to figure out exactly where I want to begin it. Um, but I, I'm working on that. Um, and then I also am, am still working as a journalist doing national security. I do a lot at the Atlantic right now, and um, I get really itchy. I can feel myself starting to climb the walls every time uh, we come up to a, a big election year. Um, I enjoy the politics. I enjoy living in D.C. It really drove me nuts to be there in 2012 and not be engaged not in the election per se, but just in the, all of the national conversations that are unfolding um, about so many interesting things as, as we get into into the height of the election season. So I'm I'm mulling how I'll how I'll kind of find my way back into that. But writing, I've got a piece coming out in the post next week. So wow, filing different things. So as we can I go follow along. you in various venues. Yeah, I like Spy Cat. Spy cat. Yeah. Spy cat's book. I want to open it up to people's questions from the audience if you have any. Um, we have some really interesting people in the audience, and we have also people, interesting people on the stage who I'm sure could answer your questions. So. I have these commemorative A Good Killing Mints here for whoever asked the first question. I'll hold them up Vanna White style. <laughs> Somebody has asked me, like, are they cyanide? You know, <laughs> will, yeah. they, will they commit a good killing? But they won't. They're just breath mints. Okay. I see a hand. Oh, <laughs> that's a he can. I, that's my my son is going to ask the question. 
And he has he, a right to ask a question. It's the mints incentivized him. Ah, right? that was an incentive. What, okay, sweetie, so what's your question? Oh, uh, that's a great question. That is, that is a good question. Why don't I write kids' books? That's a good question. And maybe my next book should be a kids' book, sweetie. I, I owe you a kids' book. I really do. So A lot of, a lot of people are doing that now. We've got, we've got Harlan Coleman and John Grisham and James Patterson. When I was at the Seattle Mystery Bookshop, I saw that Joe Nesbo has a series. Oh, that's difficult. F- fart Powder. They had me at Fart, and I got it for him. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so maybe I, maybe I will, boo boo. Maybe I will. And you just, you got yourself some mints. If I throw them, can you cut them? <laughs> and I'll say, I just had the interesting experience of my sons, who are slightly older than Allison's, my 11-year-old. I just let read my first book, and it is a really weird feeling. Yeah. I'm really thick-skinned about, you know, I'll walk down the aisle of the Amtrak and you know see somebody reading my book, and I think it's fun doesn't, you know, I'm not worried about what they're thinking at this point, but watching your son sit on the sofa pouring through your book is a really weird thing, and I tried to approach him when he'd finished and ask, you know, talk about the deep themes, and there's there's no, you know, nothing horrible in terms of language or sex or other things, but, you know, talk through some of these themes with him. He was totally not interested. He just wanted to find out what had happened next. <laughs> no discussion. He was done. When so I'm wrote, holding back the second one. It's punishment. When I wrote the first ones, they were not. They weren't conceived yet, and then they were babies. And now they're taking the books off the shelf. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not for you yet. I, I saw another question here, and I have more mints. So anybody else? Yeah. I think that. Oops. I'll get it later. I think that uh, what, what I heard you say was the prosecutor is the good guy, and then I started thinking about. Well, of course, I was already thinking about Ferguson, Missouri, where the prosecutor is, in fact, dependent on the cops, and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of politics involved, and they want to get elected, and they want to go higher, and so um, they develop these relationships that aren't necessarily healthy for the justice system. well, I think that's an, a really interesting point because that's actually kind of what a good killing is about. Like, what, in an ideal world, you have, you know, everybody in their position is doing what they should do. But in in a real world, that you know, there are humans, and in your neighborhood, you've got great neighbors and you've got terrible neighbors. And there's a jury instruction for cops in terms of believing cops' testimony. And the jury instruction always goes, you can't give it more weight and you can't give it less weight because they're cops. There's great cops and there's terrible cops. And there's going to be great and terrible people in any profession in the world. Um, the interesting thing about the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is where I worked, is that it doesn't have the same political pressures because it, the, the head, the U.S. Attorney, he or him or herself, is appointed rather than elected. So it, it makes for a different type of political pressure. But once you're there, the, that sort of, um, you know, trying to get the votes pressure isn't the, the same pressure that's there. But in an ideal world, the, the ethics for a prosecutor is find out who did it, get the guy. If you think that somebody didn't do it, you're not supposed to go for it just to get the W the, in the win column. You are supposed to dismiss the case. If you think that um, uh, evidence was improperly obtained, yeah, see if there's another legal way you can keep it. But if not, you're not supposed to use it. Like Your job is to... to toe the line, to abide by the rules, to know what the rules are and enforce them. So I, I actually wrote about this when I was in law school because I was so interested in becoming a prosecutor. So uh, if that's all in play, everything's great. There's always the human element, 
And, as we, and that's where the drama comes in, right? That's where good and evil can happen, and it's also where good stories can happen, I think. I, I mean, just to follow up on, she mentioned Ferguson, do you pay much attention to current events? Do you try to work them in? Like, you know, for example, pressure between different communities and police and communities, this is a huge theme right now. In America. Right. Are you going to work that into... It, you know, it is a huge theme right now. It doesn't, it's not as much of a huge theme in sex crimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is. You know, there will be like a Duke lacrosse case, and that will go along certain lines. But for the most part, it's a more intimate crime. And there are politics in terms of how we prosecute them. For example, it used to be, a, you know, a generation ago, you couldn't even bring a sex crime to prosecution if it was just the victim's word. There had to be corroboration, like, say, an eyewitness. So these aren't crimes that happen in crowded restaurants that precluded many sex crimes from even being prosecuted. And the idea of a, a husband assaulting his wife was impossible. Illegally, it just couldn't happen. So that evolution is changing, the, the politics there. But mostly it's an intimate crime, I think. I'm scared to throw them in now. Yeah. Did everybody hear question. that? He asked what, whether she pays attention to the reviews on Goodreads or Amazon's website. ML, you want to take? I pay attention to them. I enjoy reading them, whether they're critical or raves or anywhere in the middle. And I was saying to somebody right before we started, I think I, I am thick-skinned just as a result of being a reporter and um, having my work been out in the public domain for my entire career. People, Some people love what you report. Some people hate it. Um, you, you take you know, whatever constructive criticism you can that helps you be a better reporter or a better writer and you move on. So I, I do pay attention to it. It's, 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 there's nothing like reading a great review where somebody really gets what you were trying to do. Um, and, and it can really ruin your day to read you know, somebody who just hated your book and everything about it. But there you go. I will say that the thing that um, I have found just poisonous are the, the Amazon rankings. You probably don't notice this, but when you go on Amazon, you know, every book is, you know, it's the number two bestseller in the world right now, or it's two million or whatever, and they change those rankings every hour. And so the day you publish a book, you're, you can't, you know you shouldn't do this. You're like a rat pushing you, the button to get rat, the sugar refresh, 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 like, refresh, 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 refresh. With both my books, just, you know, because of my NPR contacts, I've been lucky and had big, you know, interviews on Morning Edition or All Things Considered, and you can watch that needle. I mean, you start, mm-hmm. when you're a debut novelist and your book wasn't on sale the day before, you start at number, like, you know, two million something in the world in terms of sales. And then you watch Morning Edition go out on the East Coast and you shoot up to 500,000. And then by the time you're on the West Coast, you're like the number two bestseller in the world, you know, for one hour. <laughs> and then it all goes to hell again. But you, you take a screenshot of that and you yes, save it. Yes, that's right. That I've got that one screenshot. I love that moment. Yes. And sometimes, I'll just to finish that, yes. sometimes reader reviews. With my second book, I did not outline obsessively. I started with this, how do you get a bullet in your neck, and what, what could be the story, and I didn't know how it was going to end. And I ended up writing the whole thing, and then setting it aside for a few weeks, and then changing it. And a couple, somebody wrote a great reader review on Goodreads, um, saying, you know what I thought you were going to do? It was a total spoiler. They've taken it off the site, because it totally revealed what did happen. But 
He said, what I thought you were going to do was this. And I read it and thought, God, that would have been great. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> Maybe for the paperback edition, I can do a little, like, choose your ending. If, if you think he did it, turn to page 172. If you think this happened, go to this other one. So, yes, all the way back. Great. Hi. Hi. That's a great question. Yeah, that, that is a great question. Do you set a limit on how long you research a certain topic? Is that what you mean? I, I have a very specific time limit because I'm on this book a year schedule. They want one book a year in, 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 my, in the romantic suspense thriller world that I do, a book a year. So I usually spend about five months doing research, and that's harder to quantify. When I'm writing, I can at least quantify a number of words. I try to hit 2,000 or 2,500 words a day, depending on how panicked I am. But research is uh, harder to quantify. So I just say, okay, I've got five months to do the research and the outlining. And I talk to people who uh, have really interesting jobs and, and tell me uh, really great stories about uh, what they've done in, in their days. And I read stuff on, online. And, um, and that, the, the talking to people is the most interesting, probably best part of my whole job. And the, the doing stuff online makes my eyes bug out. And, but then I sit down to write it, and I realize there are still 100 things I need to look up or, or keep calling and bugging people about. So it, it's kind of never over. Yeah, I agree. The, the reporting and the research continues as you keep doing it. And I, I probably err on the side of reporting for too long and then leaving the writing to the last minute. We have a, a, in a joke at NPR, the stairway edit, because the in our old building at least, the floor where the reporters sit is one floor up from the, the floor where the studios are, where you go to air. And in an ideal world, you hit your deadline an hour early and have this lovely long edit and everything turns out gracefully and exactly on time. And in reality, you're sometimes still writing the script as you're going down <coughs> to go live on air and your editor is frantically trying to edit you, the stairway edit as you're you know, heading down from floor three to floor two. And I am definitely guilty of that on the fiction <laughs> front too, still researching as I'm handing in my manuscript. I have to ask this, do you love your editors? I, I do love my editor. I, my editor is Lauren Spiegel. She's at Simon & Schuster. She has worked on all four. She bought my first book, bless her soul, and she has kept me employed for the last five years. She's bought all five of my books, and she's great. She's a friend, and she's fun to work with. So Mary Louise, how different is it from that when you were in NPR and somebody editing your novels? I think I'm much more open to being edited in fiction because I'm still figuring out what the heck I'm doing. As a reporter, I have some sense of, you know, you, there are days where you know you nailed it and other days where you think, wow, if I had another so you're two more hours, I not to fight. really do a better story. But I at least know what I'm doing and what the goal is uh, as a reporter, whereas in fiction, I really came to this a few years ago not with any experience writing fiction, and so I'm very open to it and have been very surprised at how little editing I've gotten. I really, I think, you know, the, the publishing industry, gosh, makes the media journalism world look thriving and well-staffed and, and, you know, monetarily um, profitable, and uh, they just don't have time to do long, long edits. If you haven't produced a book that's pretty much ready for prime time, you're right. not going to sell it. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. Is that one 
Right. How much of us is in our characters? I gave my character Anna my job because I had an interesting job. I didn't give her my life because my life isn't interesting enough to be in a novel. (laughs) I have a great life. I have two beautiful boys and a wonderful husband, great in-laws who are all here. Um, But it's not a novelist. It's it's not a novel. So she has a much darker history in, in her childhood. She has a much more interesting, romantic life. And she goes and does, uh, you know, she really toes the line legally because it's her bar license on the line, not my, thick, my, not my real one. So, um, yeah, I find this question hard to answer because my two protagonists are so different and they both have so much of me in them. Um, Alex James, who's the intrepid, feisty reporter chasing this huge spy story in my first book, um, is totally me. I mean, that's like what I what I've done for many years and what I love doing. Um, and yet, my second protagonist, who is quiet and introverted, and you know, won't even order a strong coffee at the beginning of the book. She's she's Miss Herbal Tea and just so um, such a homebody. And that's also kind of me. So it's it's hard to answer. I think you know we all have such different aspects of our personalities, and and of course they they play out. Kathy, pardon me, there's going to be great strife in my house tonight if my second son doesn't get to ask a question. Yes. <laughs> what would you like to ask? This is your shot. Okay, you can have mints anyhow. They're all yours. <laughs> <laughs> that okay. was the motivation. <laughs> yes. I definitely have. I, um, my husband is, is Scottish, and we've moved back and forth to Europe three times since we've been married and, and a couple times before that. And uh, we spent the last year living in Italy, and I kept coming across all these great stories. We were in Florence, where everything is about the Renaissance, and you discover these fabulous stories that would make great historical fiction. Um, I, you know what daunts me about it? for me, is the dialogue. I love writing the dialogue. I think that comes from writing for radio and broadcast. I love writing the way people speak. And it's hard to figure out. How do you write something that's going to ring remotely true for some contessa in 15th century Florence um, that I could write and yet is still going to ring true and, and be readable today? And that's, um, it's fascinating to me to watch novelists who nail that, like um, Hilary Mantel with all the Wolf Hall trilogy, which you may have read. She nails, makes Cromwell very readable, and yet it sounds authentic, and it's hard to do. Yeah. I, I have a fantasy of writing about uh, female pirates one day, but uh, no, nobody wants to hear that from me. They... <laughs> <laughs> But I, I actually, I'd like to write the story of my grandmother. She was a 19-year-old Jewish woman who escaped from Nazi Germany, came to America, um, married uh, my grandfather. I think it never would have if it hadn't been for the war and, and needing a place to go. And then at age 70, when she was uh, widowed, found the love of her life. This, uh, this uh, Now he was a 70-year-old Jewish man from uh, Germany, and they got married and kind of lived happily ever after. And uh, I, I think both eras might be interesting to cover. Mm-hmm. She's still alive. She's turning 100 this, this September. I, I need to knock it out fast. <laughs> <laughs> OK. 
Okay, well, thank you all for coming. I'm sure they'd love to talk to you again about their, their work afterwards, and we have books to sell out front, so. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much for coming, and thank you to Kathy Herrig for moderating and bringing the bookstore here. Lovely night. Thank you.